This is Classic Lutheran Preaching on KNNA LP 95.7, Lincoln, Nebraska. This is Pastor John Schmidt with an abridged presentation of Martin Luther's sermon for the third Sunday in Advent. This is from the John Nicholas Lenker Collection, published in 1905 and reissued by Baker Bookhouse in 1983. The scripture text for this sermon is 1 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning at the first verse. Let a man so account of us as of ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Here, moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment, yea, I judge not mine own self. For I know nothing against myself, yet am I not hereby justified. But he that judges me is the Lord. Wherefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord come, who will bring both to light the hidden things of darkness and make manifest the counsels of the heart. And then each man shall have his praise from God. This is our text. This epistle selection illustrates the gospel lesson for the first Sunday in Advent, wherein we learn the disciples did not themselves ride on the colt, but led it to Christ and set him thereon. That is what the apostle does here. The Corinthians had come to divisions among themselves and to boasting of certain apostles as their leaders. With one party it was Peter, with another Paul, and yet another Apollos. Each one exalted the apostle by whom he was baptized or was taught, or the one he regarded most eminent. Now comes Paul and interposes, permitting no one to boast of any apostle and teaching them to laud Christ alone. He tells them it matters not by whom they were baptized and taught, but it is of the utmost importance that they are all to hold to Christ altogether and own allegiance to him alone. Paul beautifully teaches how the apostles are to be regarded. Let a man so account of us as of ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. The reference is to all apostles and all heirs to the apostolic chair, whether Peter, Paul, or any other. Let us then be very careful how we regard the apostles and bishops. We must attach neither too much nor yet too little importance to them. Not without reason did Paul, the Holy Spirit in fact, make this restriction. And without doubt we are under obligation to follow it. The same limit here made concerning apostles applies to bishops. It designates the character of their office and the extent of their power. So when we see a bishop assuming more than this text gives him warrant for, we may safely regard him as a wolf and an apostle of the devil, and avoid him as such. Unquestionably, he must be Antichrist, who in ecclesiastical government exceeds the authority here prescribed. First Paul warns us against receiving apostles or bishops as anything but ministers of Christ, nor should they desire to be regarded otherwise. But the term minister of Christ must not in this connection be understood as one who serves God in the present acceptance of the phrase, praying, fasting, attendance upon church services, and all the things styled divine service by ecclesiastical rites, institutions, and cloisters, and by the whole clerical order. Theirs are merely humanly devised works and words, whereby Paul's teaching here and elsewhere is wholly obscured, even to the extent of making it impossible to know what he means by the ministry of Christ. He has reference to the ministry that is an office. All Christians serve God, but all are not in office. In Romans 11 and 13, also he terms his office a ministry. 
Inasmuch as I am an apostle of Gentiles, I glorify my ministry. And in the epistle selection preceding this, in Romans 15, he says, I say that Christ hath been made a minister of the circumcision. Again, 2 Corinthians 3, Who also made us sufficient as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. Paul might have said, We are the stewards of the wisdom of God, or of the righteousness of God, and so on. For all this Christ is, as he says in 1 Corinthians 1, who has made unto us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. But this would have been specifying, and he desired to embrace in one word all the blessings in Christ, which the preaching of the gospel brings, so he styles them mysteries. We may understand it as if he said, We are spiritual stewards whose duty it is to minister the grace of God, the truth of God, but who can enumerate it all? Let us briefly sum them up and say the mysteries of God, mysteries and hidden things because faith alone can attain them. He adopts the same style in Romans 1 when he comprises in one word how Christ was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, preached to the Gentiles, and so on. Similarly, in 1 Timothy 3, he expresses it in a determined way. In short, Christ was declared and determined, was received and regarded as the Son of God by angels, Gentiles, the world, heaven, and all things. Since for this purpose he was manifested, justified, revealed, preached, believed, received, and so on. Hence he indicates it here by the plural word mysteries, and in 1 Timothy 3 by the singular mystery. The words are, however, equivalent in this connection. Christ is all in all one mystery and many mysteries, as expressed in the many mysterious blessings we have from him. It is worthy of note that Paul adds to mysteries the modifier of God. He means the hidden things of God, the things that he grants and which exist in him. For the devil also has his mysteries, as Revelation 17 says, upon her forehead a name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, and so on. Again, in the seventh verse, it says, I will tell thee the mystery of the woman. The things over which the Pope and his priests now preside as stewards are mysteries of the latter class, for they intimate that their doctrine and deeds win heaven, when in reality they but conceal death and hell for all who trust therein. But the mysteries of God enfold life and salvation. Thus we arrive at the Apostle's meaning in the assertion that a minister of Christ is a steward in the mysteries of God, he should regard himself and insist that others regard him as one who administers to the household of God nothing but Christ and the things of Christ. In other words, he should preach the pure gospel, the true faith, that Christ alone is our life, our way, our wisdom, power, glory, salvation, and that all we can accomplish of ourselves is but death, error, foolishness, weakness, shame, and condemnation. Whoever preaches otherwise should be regarded by none as a servant of Christ or a steward of the divine treasurer. He should be avoided as a messenger of the devil. And so it follows. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. Upon this all depends. After faithfulness, God inquires. Angels, men, and all creatures look for and demand it. Not the mere name or honor of steward will answer. The question is not whether one's bishopric be large or small, nor is it particularly important whether or not he be outwardly pious. The question is, does he faithfully execute the duties of his office, acting as a steward in the blessings of God? 
Paul here permits as much liberty to judge the doctrines and lives of our bishops, cardinals, and all papists. The same faithfulness is also required by Christ. As he says in Matthew 24, Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his Lord has set over his household to give them their food in due season? What is the nature of the faithfulness of the papists? How does it measure up? Tell me. Who would be reformed or profited were any one bishop to have prominence and power enough to possess every bishopric as the Pope tries to do? Who would be benefited if a bishop were so holy that his shadow would raise the dead? Who would be the gainer if he had wisdom equal to all the apostles and prophets? But none of these things are inquired after. The question is, is he a faithful bishop? Does he administer to the household of faith the word of God? Does he preach the gospel and dispense the mysteries of God? Emphatically, the inquiry is made upon these points. Here is where the individual is benefited. Above all things, then, faithfulness is demanded of stewards. But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment. First, we must understand Paul's language here and explain the terms of the original with which we need to be as familiar as with our own mother tongue. He employs the word judge, or sentence, in a worthy sense, that is, as carrying the thought of esteem. Judgment, as generally understood, conveys the idea of condemnation. But this is true. Every public judgment operates in two ways. One party is condemned, the other liberated. One is punished, the other rewarded. One dishonored, the other honored. The same is true in private judgment. While the Pharisee in the gospel praised himself, he censured the publican and others. While he honored himself, he dishonored others. And the attitude of everyone toward his neighbor is either praise or censure. Judgment must involve these two things. Hence, Paul here says he is judged or sentenced by the Corinthians. That is, their judgment renders honor and praise unto him. By extolling Paul above the other apostles, decision is made between him and the others, to his advantage and with prejudice against them. Some, however, judged in favor of Peter, others of Apollos. That judgment is here equivalent to praise, and is evident from the conclusion of the passage. Judge nothing before the time until the Lord come, then shall each man have his praise from God. What is this but saying, praise not? Let God praise. It is God's prerogative to judge, to praise, and to crown man. We are not to perform that office for one another. Paul regards it a very trivial matter to command the clamorous honor and praise of men, to gain a reputation with them. He aptly calls such popularity man's judgment or human glory. For it is of human origin and not directed of God, and with man it shall pass. Paul would say, I do not desire your praise, nor the praise of all the world. Let men seek for that. Servants of Christ and stewards of God look to Christ and to a divine glory for their judgment. He goes on and says, Yea, I judge not mine own self. You may inquire how it is that Paul should look upon his own judgment of himself as truer than the judgment of any other. For we see how the majority of men praise or highly approve themselves. Naturally, one is pleased with himself, but few receive the glory of man's judgment, and are honored in the sentence of others. We might expect Paul to reverse the statement, saying, With me it is a very small thing that I should judge myself. I desire neither this human glory of man's judgment, nor the praise of yourselves, or of all the world. But he speaks rather as a Christian, and according to the state of his own conscience before God. 
The Corinthians exalted Paul in the things acceptable to God. They insisted he was higher, greater, and better before God than the other apostles. But certain other Christians extolled Peter. Now, there is with God no better evidence of the soul's condition than what the conscience reveals. God judges not like men according to appearance, but according to the heart, as we learn from 1 Samuel 16. Man looketh on the outward appearance, but Jehovah looketh on the heart. So it is plain the evidence of our consciences is of greater weight before God than the testimony of all the world. And this evidence alone will stand, as said in Romans 2, their conscience bearing witness therewith and their thoughts one with another accusing or else excusing them in the day when God shall judge the secrets of men. Paul would ask, Why should divisions arise among you concerning us? What if one is preferred of men before another? It is altogether immaterial, for even our own conscience is refrained from judging as to who ranks first in God's sight. Solomon says, He that trusteth in his own heart is a fool. Proverbs 28 There are no grounds for divisions. No one knows who ranks first with God. Christ himself does not claim the right to set one soul on the right hand and the other on the left, as he says in Matthew 20. Since all the apostles are alike before God, since one is a minister of Christ as well as another, and since we may not know who ranks first in God's estimation, let no one presume to judge, much less to exalt himself above another because of temporal power, wealth, or popularity. The exaltation of the Pope and the claim that his eminence is from God is in violation of this principle. Paul's words dispute it, teaching that no one is able to know our, nor judge until the last day. Do you ask further concerning Paul, who desired to be regarded as a minister of Christ and a steward of God, why did he not judge himself? I reply, as before stated, the ministry and the office are not his, but God's, who enjoined them upon him. As no man can create the word of God, so no man has authority to send it forth or constitute an apostle. God has himself accomplished the work. He has constituted the apostles. Hence we should own the work, glory in it, confess it, and give to publish abroad the news of the priceless blessing the one God has bestowed. To illustrate, though I cannot constitute myself a living soul, I ought to glory in and confess the fact that God has created me a human being. But just as I am incapable of judging how I stand and will stand in the sight of God, so I cannot judge which apostle or steward is greater before God. Verse 4. For I know nothing against myself, yet am I not thereby justified. This verse also implies that the Corinthians judged the apostles in regard to the worthiness of person and works. Paul admits his conscience does not reproach him and confesses to the truth of their judgment so far as his person and conscience are concerned. But he teaches that such judgment does not suffice before God, and that all decisions based on the same principle are false. Much might be said on this verse. It shows us all works are rejected and no one is made godly and happy by any of them. The fact that Paul dared to say, I know nothing against myself, proves him certainly to have abounded in good works. Nevertheless, he says, I am not hereby justified. By what is he justified then? By faith alone. Could one be justified upon the grounds of a clear conscience? Knowing nothing against himself, his confidence would rest in himself. He would judge and extol his own character, as do presumptuous saints. 
then faith in God's grace would be unnecessary. We would have in ourselves all essentials and could easily dispense with God. The fact is, however, all depends on our reliance upon the grace of God. Thereby are we justified. The subsequent judgment of our works and character, of our calling and worthiness, must be left to God. We are certain we are vindicated by none of these things, and uncertain how God will estimate them. It is easily evident to all, I presume, that Paul refers to his character after conversion when he says he knows nothing against himself. For concerning his previous life, he tells us in 1 Timothy 1, he was an unbeliever, a blasphemer, and a persecutor of the first Christians. Again from verse 4, But he that judges me is the Lord. The thought here is, I will wait for God's judgment and praise. Paul says also in 2 Corinthians 10, For not he that commendeth himself is approved, but whom the Lord commendeth. His intent, however, is not to deter them from godly living, but rather to incite thereto. Although no man is capable of judging and commending another, yet none shall go unjudged and uncommended. God himself will judge and praise right living. We should be so much the more faithful in doing good because God is to be the judge. We are not to be remiss here, even though uncertain as to how he judges us. Verse 5. Wherefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and make manifest the counsel of the heart, and then shall each man have praise of God. We may well ask, are we not to give praise to one another? Paul says in Romans 12, In love of the brethren be tenderly affectioned one to another. And Christ in Matthew 5, Even so let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And the Apostle also tells us in 2 Corinthians 6, We must here upon earth walk by evil report and good report. But we reply, our faith alone, not our works, is the chief thing to be honored in all cases. Good works are imperative when we should extol them to others. But no one is to be judged, justified, or preferred because of them. The farmer at his plow sometimes may be better in God's sight than the chaste nun. The five foolish virgins in Matthew 25, despite their virginity, are condemned. The widow who threw into the treasury two mites in Mark 12 did more than all the others who cast in much greater amounts. The work of the woman who was a sinner in Luke 7 is extolled above any work of the Pharisees. It is impossible for us mortals to discern the relative merits of individuals and the value of their works. We ought to praise all, give equal honors, and not preferring one above another. We should humble ourselves before one another, ever esteeming our neighbor above ourselves. Then we are to leave it to God to judge who ranks first. True, he has declared that whoever humbles himself should be exalted. Yet it is not evident who humbles and who exalts himself, for the heart by which God judges is not manifest. One may humble himself when secretly in his heart he is haughty, and again the meek heart may exalt himself. So Paul says, the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and make manifest the counsels of the heart. Then it will appear who is really worthier, superior, and better, and whose works excel. Again, verse 5, bring to light the hidden things of darkness and make manifest the counsels of the heart. Paul gives the reason we should refrain from commending ourselves or any other when he declares that the hidden things of darkness and the counsels of the heart are not yet brought to light. 
Since God judges according to the secrets of the heart, which we cannot know, we should withhold judgment of the various stations and works of men and not make a distinction. The virgin is not to exalt her state of virginity above the station of the wife. The pope ought to humble his eminence below the position of the plowboy. No one should presume to regard his own station or that of another as better before God than the occupations of other men. By the hidden things of darkness and the counsels of the heart, Paul refers to the two powers commonly but not very intelligibly termed will and reason. Man possesses in his inmost being two capacities. He loves, desires, delights, wills, and he understands, perceives, judges, decides. I shall term these capacities motive and thought. The motives and desires of man are deep and deceitful beyond recognition. No man, no saint even, can wholly comprehend them. Jeremiah says in chapter 17, The heart is deceitful above all things, and is exceedingly corrupt. Who can know it? I, Jehovah, searcheth the mind, I try the heart. And David says in Psalm 32, Blessed is the man in whose spirit there is no guile. Many pious individuals perform great works from a selfish motive or desire. They seek their own interest, yet never with assurance. They serve God not purely for love of him, but for the sake of personal honor or profit, of gaining heaven and escaping the tortures of hell. One cannot realize the falseness of his motives until God permits him to endure many severe temptations. So Paul calls such motives hidden things of darkness, a most appropriate name. Not only are they concealed, but in darkness in the inmost heart, where they are unperceived by the individual himself and known to God alone. Now, according to our secret motives, so are our thoughts, good or evil. Our motives and desires control our aims, decisions, and reasonings. These latter, Paul terms, counsels of the heart, the thoughts we arrive at in consequence of our secret motives and desires. Of these two, Mary hints in her song of praise in Luke 1, He hath scattered the proud in the imagination of their heart. She calls intent or motive of the heart the hidden things of darkness. Her desire, while the counsels and imaginations are the heart's expression. Moses, referring to man's heart, says in Genesis 6, Every imagination of the thoughts of his heart are only evil continually. And Christ, in Matthew 6, earnestly warns us against the same false motive. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is the darkness! The reference in this whole quotation is to the secret workings of darkness, which are not to be overcome in any way but by despair of our own works and strong faith in the pure grace of God. Nothing is more conducive to this end than suffering severe and many and all manner of misfortunes. Under such influences, man may learn to some extent to know himself, otherwise all is lost. May the Lord preserve us. Amen. This has been a presentation of Classical Lutheran Preaching from the Sermons of Martin Luther, the John Nicholas Lenker Collection of 1905 and reprinted by Baker Bookhouse in 1983.